We're continuing today in our preaching series through the Gospel according to Mark. So if you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14, find ourselves in verse 53 today, and uh, I'm realizing just how long these chapters at the end of Mark really are. My goodness. I thought we were almost done, and we'll be going forever, I think. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. If you have the ability to do this, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel this morning. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. So, as I was wrestling with this text this week, uh, the text itself led me in a direction that I didn't expect. And that's not unusual uh, when I'm reading the scriptures, because I try and let the text lead me along. But uh, something else happened this week. I said this to Jen uh, just yesterday. I said, the problem with this message is that I find it very hard to believe. I'm convinced that's what the scriptures are saying but I find it very hard to believe that it's true. Is that too much vulnerability? Should I have lied about that? So I'm going to preach a message today that doesn't really come out of a a, a comfortable place for me, but forces me, I think, by the text to confess something that I have to believe is true because I think it's what the Scriptures tell us is true. Yet in my own experience, I have a very difficult time believing is true. Maybe you'll be in that same space. But as a way of starting this out, I was thinking about uh, this story that I had heard. I think I heard it a long time ago, because it really comes out of the 70s. But the gentleman that the story is about, his name was Hiro Onada. He was a Japanese intelligence officer in World War II. And he just passed away two years ago in January, January 2014, at 91 years old. And at that time, I heard his story again. And, and something about that story came to mind today. Some of you may know it, because it's a fairly old story now. But... Hiro Onada was a Japanese intelligence officer who remained and continued to fight as though World War II was still happening in the Philippines until 1974. 29 years. In 1945, he did discover pamphlets in in the island of the Philippines where he was that said the war was over. But they were produced by the United States of America and he thought that they were propaganda, that the United States was playing a trick on him. 
And he continued to have skirmishes. There were other officers with him. I think 30 people died in conflicts over those 29 years as he continued to fight, believing the Allies were his enemy. In 1974, a Japanese traveler discovered him on one of these islands and informed him that the war had been over for a very long time. But still, he didn't believe him. And he said, I will not lay down my arms until my commanding officer comes and tells me that the war is over. So the Japanese traveler went back to mainland or to the island of Japan and informed the government of what was happening. And so later on in 1974, Onada's wartime commander visited the Philippines and officially ordered him to surrender. And he did. 29 years after the war had been over. Now, there are lots of these kind of stories of people that it took a long time to get to them that wars were finished, and they were still fighting as though they were still actively engaged in battle. But this is just a unique one. One guy refusing anybody but his commander-in-chief, 29 years doing guerrilla tactics in the Philippines, thinking that the world was still at war and that his country still had a chance to win. There's something about that mentality that is here, I think, in the Gospel according to Mark and what Jesus is trying to communicate to the high priest. We'll see if you agree with me as we continue. Now, I feel like I've, I, I'm, I'm not one to preach a lot on the end times, but because of where we are in Mark, I've already done that once, and here we are in some ways doing it again. And, and I, So I'm going to say something that I said before, but it, it's getting new teeth even again today. I think I, we preached on the end times, what, a month ago, two months ago? And already more end times fervor has, has come up. I don't know if anybody realized, I didn't realize until this last week, that Jim Baker was still, still doing his thing. I thought after he went to prison, his ministry was over. But apparently he's still doing his thing. And I was, saw a video this week, I don't know how I came across it, of Jim Baker interviewing a man named John Shorey, who's convinced that the tribulation talked about in Revelation is going to start in March of this year, March of 2016. And I was fascinated as I watched his logic about why that this is the time. Now, some of it is related to this, this fervor about the Shibboleth years. Some of you have, have heard about this. Um, there's, a, there's one theory, if you read the, the book of Daniel, you'll see some prophecies Daniel makes about the end of time. And one of the things he says is that God has set aside 77s. And some have taken that to be a metaphorical number. Others have taken it to be a really literal number. So there are some folks who believe that what Daniel is saying is that God is setting amount of time that is equivalent to 70 jubilee year cycles. And the jubilee year happened once every seven Sabbath cycles. So you had a Sabbath every seventh year in Israel, and then every seventh seventh year, the 50th year, so seven times seven is 49, that 50th year you would have the year of jubilee. On that year, uh, all the debts were supposed to be canceled. Anybody who had sold property because they had gotten into financial woes, the property was to be given back to them, their ancestral land. Anybody who had loaned money was to cancel all those debts in the 50th year. Now some have read Daniel as saying that there were to be 70 of those 50-year cycles. And some are arguing that that cycle is now up in 2016, which means all of this stuff is going to start happening. It's an interesting argument, I suppose, though I'm not sure how the math works, because according to my calculations, if that is literal, then we should be looking at 2053. I don't know where 2016 comes from. But uh, you can look at that if you want to. But what I'm saying is that there's still, even today, an enormous amount of fervor about when the end is going to come. When is Jesus going to come back? When is He finally going to be enthroned? When are all these demonic powers and human institutions going to be wiped out? When will peace finally come? 
Well, here's the question I want you to, to wrestle with this morning. What if Jesus is already enthroned? What if Jesus is already enthroned? What if all we are waiting for is for the heavens to be opened and for that to be seen? Now, I want to just talk, before we even get into the text more, I want to talk about the heavens. And I've said this before in worship, but if you weren't here, I really don't want you to be left behind. And if you took, you know, pun intended. And uh, if, if, if you were part of our Bible study uh, where we talked about the Lord's Prayer on Wednesday nights, you heard this there a lot of times too. But I, I, we have this mentality that the heavens are another place, another reality, a realm apart. Somehow it's like where God came from, wherever that is. And then we've got this universe and we've got heaven somewhere on the other side of eternity. But that's not the biblical understanding of the heavens. In the Bible, we're told in Genesis that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're told exactly when He created the heavens. We're told that at the beginning of all things, the earth was everything, not just the earth, but the whole universe was water, chaos. And then God spoke into that chaos and He said, let the waters be separated. And in the midst of those waters, He created a habitable space for life to exist and He called that space the heavens. That's the heavens. And then God lifts up a platform for life, the land, that rises up into the heavens and that's where humans live and walk. So in the, in the mentality of the Hebrew prophets, and that's really, in my view, all we care about when we're talking about the biblical stuff, in the mentality of the Hebrew prophets, the heavens is this space that you and I walk in. It extends, according to Genesis, all the way up to the farthest reaches of the universe. It's all that stuff we call empty space. Here on earth, there's an atmosphere that populates it. Once you get up in space, they say it's a vacuum. Other people say that it's actually a fabric called space-time. Whatever it is, that realm is God's realm. Those are the heavens. And so when I say Jesus is right now enthroned in the heavens, I'm not saying that Jesus might right now be enthroned in some place far away and we're just waiting for him to come back and conquer this place like he's already conquered that place. We're talking about Jesus enthroned right here in the midst of us. What if he already is? What if we are already living in the kingdom of God? I know there's a lot of reason to doubt that. And that's why I find what I'm about to preach very hard to believe. But let's look at the text. We're going to look at three items as we move through this passage. First, Jesus' trial. Second, Jesus' testimony. And third, Jesus' triumph. We're going to start with Jesus' trial. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but if you have your Bibles, keep them open. Look at verse 53. We're told that they took Jesus to the high priest... And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Now, this some will call this the trial before the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin is the group of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who make decisions for the Jewish people. The high priest is part of that, so that's probably where he is. Though Mark doesn't tell us exactly what this group is called. And the purpose of this trial is clear enough. They want to find Jesus guilty of something that the Romans will find worthy of death. Now, we're not told why they want the Romans to make this decision. There are some scholars who say that possibly the Jewish people didn't have the authority to execute anybody in this time. It's very hard to say whether that's true or not, but some suspect that. But in the end, for one reason or another, the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to be condemned by the Romans. I think the easiest answer in Mark is that they didn't want the people blaming them for his execution. But you decide what you think. But anyway, the purpose is then to find something that Jesus has said that will be considered capital by the Roman authorities. Treason or sedition or something. And that probably explains why this discussion of the temple is at the center of their investigation. Because if Jesus had truly 
truly said that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, certainly the Romans would have taken that very seriously. That would certainly sound like an act of war. And so they're very interested in this. Now, we already know what Jesus actually said because it's here earlier in Mark. He told them that the temple was going to be destroyed and not one stone was going to be left on top of another. But because he said that to his disciples, nobody outside of his disciples really knew what it was. They either, they either just overheard it or it was just hearsay or half-truths or whatever else. So, so the chief priests are trying to build a case that Jesus has threatened to destroy the temple so they can tell the Romans, but none of the witnesses agree. They can't agree on exactly what he said, or what he meant, or what he implied. And at this point, the Jewish people are being really good Jewish people. They are trying to obey the Torah, the Law of Moses. And in the Law of Moses, any capital offense had to be sustained by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And those witnesses had to substantially agree. Well, they can't get anybody to agree. And so they can't condemn him. Otherwise, they would be violating the law. So here's this wonderful, ironic moment in which the people who want God dead can't get it done because in order to do it, they'd have to break God's law, which they refuse to do. So finally, the high priest speaks up. And he asks Jesus first the question, what is it that they're testifying about? Tell us what you actually said, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even touch that one. He refuses to answer. So then the high priest asks him a deeper question, one that summarizes the entire concern of the gospel according to Mark from the beginning to this point. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And that's a strange question to ask. Because as far as we can tell historically, there was nothing wrong with claiming to be the Messiah. There had been people who claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus, and others who would claim to be the Messiah after Jesus. And none of them, according to historical records, was ever charged with blasphemy. So this is an interesting question to ask. What does he think he can accomplish with this answer? But I am convinced of this one point. If Jesus had not answered that question, they would have had to release him. They had nothing. I love these uh, these court shows on television and lawyer shows and all this stuff investigate my poor wife suffers between sci-fi and fake courtroom scenes <laughs> it's like everything we watch right and uh, I'm, I watched this, this show called Elementary, which is a new take on the Sherlock Holmes uh, the whole mythology. And so some of you might have watched it. In the most recent episode, they're in another situation, this happens all the time, where they have no evidence against someone who's guilty. But their only chance is to get the person to confess to what they did. And so the whole thing is about how they get this person to confess by manipulating them. Because if the guy can just keep his mouth shut, he's scot-free. He'll never get caught. Now, I don't know, that's probably not really true in, in most aspects of trial. John could inform us on how trials really go. But we can certainly say that uh, some, of the biggest, uh, uh, some of the biggest criticism, public criticism against the death penalty today relates to the fact that many have been convicted on false testimony, their own false confessions that were coerced or something else. And so people think we shouldn't have this death penalty if the system is so corrupt. But in any case, it just illustrates a situation in which it's the confession that's going to be condemning. And Jesus, if he could have just not answered a second time, he probably would have had to be released. But he couldn't not answer. And it is his answer that brings the charge of blasphemy. 
And if it's not related to his confessing to be the Messiah, then why did they charge him with blasphemy? That's what we're going to look at. Let's look at Jesus' testimony. Verse 62. Jesus said, in response to, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Which is just quotations from the First Testament. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Throughout the Gospel, according to Mark, Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. But it's been unclear what that means. In Aramaic, which is probably the language Jesus was speaking, that's just an idiomatic way of saying human. So Jesus keeps calling himself the human. And I'm sure if you heard that today, if somebody was walking around and he kept referring himself in the third person as the human, you'd think that was odd. And certainly Jesus' people did too. Nobody knew what he was getting at. Now, that phrase was used uh, in the book of Ezekiel over and over again. God always called Ezekiel the Son of Man, which is another way of saying, Hey, human! And so maybe that's what Jesus is getting at. Maybe he sees himself as a prophet, maybe inheriting kind of the ministry of Ezekiel. But up until now, we haven't known why he kept calling himself the Son of Man. But this statement that he makes before the high priest at this first trial makes his understanding of the phrase Son of Man a bit clearer. In fact, Jesus, and you'll find this throughout Jesus' ministry here, especially in these last days of his life, he can hardly speak a word that's not Scripture. And here he is referring to Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read them. And it's the reason that I started with all that end time stuff. Because some of you will recognize, who are very familiar with the book of Revelation, that just about everything in Revelation is taken from someplace else. And most of it is taken right here from, the, from Daniel, who lived a few hundred years at least uh, before Jesus was born. This is Daniel chapter 7. I'll invite you to turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read these verses. But I want to notice two things. First, it's the high priest's response to this that leads him to say to the whole crowd, this guy is clearly a blasphemer. So listen to what he might be hearing. Secondly, it becomes clear enough that this passage is not necessarily seen as a passage about the Messiah by the Jewish people. But let's listen to this. And if you don't like apocalyptic stuff and, and beasts and animals and future prophecies, you're going to hate this. So here we go. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came, out, came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. You see why I like sci-fi? Tell me that's not science fiction. Come on. It's at least fantasy, right? Are you imagining it? Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared, like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that had preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. They were, there were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. This would be almost funny if we saw it, wouldn't you think? Verse 9. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one, the Ancient of Days, took his throne. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. It sounds like a, like a, a wheelchair, doesn't it? A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one, here it is, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him, should worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Now, we could go on and on in Daniel, and what we're going to get next is an interpretation that Daniel receives from, from the angel about what he's seen, and more or less, just to summarize it, uh, those beasts are all considered kingdoms of the earth. But there are two uh, things I want to note about that reading from Daniel. And some of you who are familiar with Revelation, you'll notice tons of parallels, right? In some ways, you wouldn't have known you weren't reading Revelation when I was reading that, right? The horns and everything. Well, first, this king, who is going to get his authority from the Ancient of Days, is to be worshipped. Now, your translation might say, to be served. But what I need to tell you is that in Hebrew, now this is written in Aramaic because it's Daniel, but I'm assuming it's the same there. But even if it's not, this is what matters. In Hebrew, the word for serve and the word for worship is the same. They don't have two different words. So this king is to be worshipped. Now, of course, in Hebrew, thinking, only God is to be worshipped. No human being is to be worshipped. So that's a problem, right? Second, do you notice when this king is enthroned, when he's given this authority? It's after all that stuff. After the beasts, after the war, after the judgment, after they've been destroyed. That's when he gets his throne, right? Which has led so many to think that this has to be at the end of time. Now, I want to first get to Mark. I think the reason that the high priest is able to say that Jesus committed blasphemy is because of this passage. In this passage, that king is to be worshipped. And only God is to be worshipped. I think the high priest heard what everybody else in the room heard. He thinks we should worship him. Blasphemy! It also shows us that they probably didn't think of Daniel 7 as having anything to do with the Messiah. It had something to do with God. And there's evidence in the time of Jesus that there were many Jewish people who didn't even think that that book belonged in the Bible yet. There was debate over that. But Jesus quotes it. So Jesus' testimony before the high priest when he asks him if he's the Messiah is this. He says that God is going to grant him dominion and glory and kingship and that all nations on earth should worship him. That's enough. Certainly that's going to make the Romans upset, right? He's claiming to be king over, over Caesar. We got him! Blasphemy! Who needs witnesses? You were all just here. We got a room full of them. He's dead! If he had only kept his mouth shut. But why does Jesus tell him that? And when does it happen? And this is where I have gone back to the scriptures over and over again this week. 
Because I don't know about you, but me, when I read passages like that, and I've read it in Revelation, I've read it here in Daniel, there are passages like this in Ezekiel and Isaiah, I always project it out to the far end of time. I have this picture of maybe Jesus enthroned, but in a place far away. And one day he's going to come, the heavens are going to open, he's going to lead a conquering party to come in and conquer this universe and this world. And then he'll take over and everything will be perfect. Have you, have you shared that vision? That's the way I've read it my whole life. But what I discovered this week as I thought about Jesus' testimony in here and what he's trying to say, it's almost as though Jesus believes that right then, in their presence, the war is being fought. That right then, as he's on trial, that right then, as he's going to the cross, the battle of the ages is being fought. And the New Testament writers almost uniformly in their confessions throughout the New Testament. They say, more or less, that when Jesus ascended into the heavens, that he assumed the throne that moment. I'll give you a couple of examples. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, we have the story of Stephen, one of the early leaders of the church, who's being just about to be stoned by the Jewish leaders and authorities. And we find these words. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowds, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And again, in the, in the Greek, it's literally, he gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, where do you suppose Stephen was looking when he saw this? Up there, far away? Was he seeing a vision of the future? No. The story in Acts here is simply that the heavens in front of him were opened and he saw what was the truth. Jesus was enthroned, standing at the right hand of the Father. The standing is probably important. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see the phrase, Son of Man. He's right back to Daniel. It's already happened. It's already happened. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, this is a book we preached through about a year and a half ago. Some of you may remember the sermon on this passage. But in that talking about Jesus' baptism, His crucifixion as a baptism, uh, we find these words, And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to Him. So why is the New Testament so insistent that He's on the throne now? Not one day, but now. Not in another reality, in these heavens. Why? I suspect that Mark, in part, has indicated to us that that declaration Jesus has been making since the very beginning of His ministry in Mark, do you remember what it is? Everywhere He went, repent for the kingdom of heaven draws near. There's every reason to believe that in Mark, that promise is fulfilled in the events that are about to be narrated. In Jesus' condemnation, in His crucifixion, in His resurrection, and then in His ascension. So, even though we carry with us this idea that we are still waiting for Jesus to be the King, 
where we still have this somehow this belief that the powers of evil are the ones who are in control, or human nations are really in control. And Jesus is not yet in control, but if we can just trust Him and wait for Him, one day He will finally get on the throne and exercise His control, and He'll make us all safe. What if that one day has already occurred? Does that change anything for us? But there's a reason that even though the New Testament so consistently says that, that you and I don't believe it. And there's a reason that I don't believe it. And it's because if Jesus is on the throne right now, I mean, if He is the King of the heavens right now, look at this world! I mean, if if this is Jesus on the throne, I hesitate to speculate about what people may say about His rule. But the Gospels and the New Testament writers don't leave us there. I think they insist He is on the throne. And at the same time try to explain why the world is as it is. And I've preached about this before, so some of you may agree with this already. Some of you may have disagreed then and continue to disagree now. But if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to this so that you don't think I'm lying to you. And I won't think you, you doubt me if you read. So turn, just do that. Second Peter chapter 3. Now, the same issue is at stake in Second Peter. And I preached this a little differently when I first preached it because I didn't have eyes to see this. I, when I first preached this, I was thinking that, that the people in Peter's day were asking, where is God? Why isn't He ruling yet? I mean, if Jesus already died for us and He already ascended, why is it taking so long for His rule to be exercised? I mean, it seems like maybe this is all just a lie, just a farce. I mean, look at the world. And then Peter continues to insist to the people, he's not slow. And he says these words, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But don't ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. So here's the thought, I think, that comes out of this passage. Jesus seems to declare that He is about to be coronated as the king of all creation and worthy to be worshipped by all nations on earth. It's for that reason that he was condemned for blasphemy. It was for that reason that he will be killed on Calvary. But ironically, it is those very events for Mark that are going to qualify him for the kingship he will receive. And so here's the question for us. And this I've wrestled with this this week. I don't know what it's going to mean to you. I can only share with you what it's beginning to mean to me. And I hope this is just the beginning of a conversation for us. If we're not waiting for Jesus to be enthroned, but He already is on the throne, if He already is the King of the heavens and the earth, how might that awareness change our lives? Second Peter suggests that the state of this world is not related to God's impotence. 
It's not related to the reality that Jesus is not yet king or that God is not the ruler of this place. Peter insists that the reason that the world is as it is is because God is patient, willing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. We all suffer for that mercy. Just as Jesus suffered for it on the cross, you and I suffer for it too. Because the longer He waits, the more opportunity there are, there is for people to use the freedom and the grace that God gives them to do harm to one another, damage to the world, and we all suffer for it. Matter of fact, in some ways, the very evidence that most people use to say there is no God, like if there were a God, this world wouldn't be the way it is. There would be no suffering. There would be no evil. If there really was a God and He was any kind of a ruler, none of us would ever get sick. None of us would ever suffer. None of us would ever have to endure tyrants. We'd never have to endure neighbors who don't treat us the way we should be treated. We'd never have to endure all the things we have to endure. If God were on the throne, the world would be perfect. But what if He is? What if He is on the throne and this is the world He has chosen for us? What does that mean? Peter seems to suggest in 2 Peter 3 that God's mercy to sinners is more important than your or my suffering. I know that we don't all agree with that. I know that if we could sit God down, there are some of us who would give, us, give Him a piece of our mind about that decision. Because how in the world could a wicked sinner who has squandered every opportunity to follow God and continues to live in sin, how could that person be more important than me? Why should I have to suffer for that piece of garbage? Why? And yet Jesus, somehow, when He looks at such a person, and He showed this all the way through the Gospels, He doesn't see a piece of garbage. He sees a human being with the potential to be a being made in God's image. And Jesus just will not quit on that person. But by not quitting on that person, in some ways, He causes everybody who's affected by that person to suffer. Why? What if this world is exactly the way God has chosen it to be? What if this is what Jesus' Lordship looks like? How does that change things? For me, I'm beginning to appreciate that God is in a battle that is far greater than my own personal experience in this world. That He is in the process of creating beings made in His image. Dallas Willard says He is in the process of creating beings who He will entrust one day to set loose on the universe in complete and total freedom. And not just anyone can be trusted with that kind of authority and freedom. And so Willard has said, and his book has been shaping me, almost preparing me for this passage in Mark, that Jesus, when he gets on the throne, is such a struggle for the people of God. Because Jesus on the throne looks like suffering for many of us. It looks like a God who's not making his decisions as though our lives were the center of the universe. He looks like a God who, go, who leaves the 99 of us who have followed him and goes chasing after that one sheep who wandered away. And the rest of us are going... There are wolves here too, Jesus! Why should that one moron leave us all at risk? That's not fair! I know you love the sheep, and if you're one of those wandering sheep, you love that story. Because you're the moron! You're the one who wandered away from the herd, and now he, our God, the God of all grace, chasing you down, and the rest of us 
us are all sitting here going, what if the wolves come? But this is the God Jesus continually describes God to be. When he sees that sheep wander away, he has to follow. And I know there's safety in herds, and I know we're safer together than that one is alone. But that's not a calculation you and I like to make, right? He talks about the kingdom of heaven like a woman who's lost a coin. And even though she has all the rest of the coins in her headdress, she searches high and low and tears her house upside down. And when she finds that coin, she rejoices. He talks about the kingdom as a prodigal son who goes away and squanders all of his father's wealth and resources and spends it on wild and lascivious living. And then when that son decides he's going to come back, the father gives him, kills the fattened calf and puts a robe on him and celebrates. And the older son, who's been there the whole time, says, How fair is that? That kid's a jerk. He wanted you dead. He took all your money. He went and spent it. Who knows how he spent it? Now he's broke. Then he's coming home and you kill the fatty calf. I've been here all the time. Where's my party? Are you in that story? Our God rules with mercy first. And some of you have said this to me. I won't say who. I don't think I remember. So many people have said it over the years, I'll never remember. But some have said, when we've read the Sermon on the Mount or talked about the ethics of Jesus, they've said to me, you can't live that way. Look, if a government was set up that way, what kind of a world would it be? You see it! <laughs> this is it! It's not safe! It's not safe! It doesn't even look just. It looks indiscriminate. You know exactly how the world Jesus is describing looks because it's exactly the way God runs the thing. And every human nation on earth tries to undo God's work. It tries to put justice before mercy. It tries to put safety and security against seeking the lost and the hurting. Every government. What Jesus is beginning to show us in this trial is that His way is the only way to the future God wants us to have and it's going to take His death. He is going to have to be vulnerable for the mercy of God. He is going to have to embrace it. This is what it takes to make the kingdom of the heavens. You must be willing to suffer for my mercy on the world. Will you do it? Jesus didn't know if he could, right? In that garden, we talked about this. He prayed about it. He didn't want to do that. I'm sure Jesus thought, you know, there are better ways to do this, God. Why do I have to die? Why can't we just, like, raise an army and just kick the snot out of these people? I mean, that's a good way to conquer Satan, right? Peter wanted that when he saw the mountain of transfiguration. He said, let's set up a capital city. That's what we do, Jesus. That's what we do. When we've already gotten where we want to go, we set up a city, build walls, we keep people out. That's what we do. And Jesus says, what are you? You're an idiot, more or less. I'm paraphrasing. And he says, no, 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 we're not going to stay on this mountain. We're going to go right back out and we're going to let him kill me. That's what we're going to do. And Peter says, you're not going to get killed, Jesus. That's idiotic. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because every attempt to stay safe is Satan. Every attempt to show mercy is Jesus. Jesus will not, for his own safety, sacrifice the lost. He won't do it. But we have built a church, and this is where I'm so, I struggle with this sermon, because I'm a church person too. But we have built churches over and over and over again, where we have sold the exact opposite story. We've told people that the world is dangerous, but God is safe. That, that evil exposes you to all the, all the risk in the world. But if you follow God, then you have security and safety and peace and health and money and wealth. 
That God's way is the safe way. And that the evil way is the risky way. But if that were true, everybody would be Christians, folks. And it's not true. The truth is that Satan's way is the safe way. Jesus' way is cross and calvary and sacrifice and vulnerability and death. Following Jesus is the risky choice. It's why nobody makes it. And you might try to lie to people and tell them that's not true, but they see through it. And they see through it today better than ever before. Because we don't live in a Christian nation now. We don't live in a nation where governments doing the evil satanic things keep us all safe and we can call it Christian. We don't live in that world now. Now the world sees it for what it is. And they finally have recognized that following Jesus is riskier than following our own ethics and values. And so now they're setting up governments based on the principles of justice first, and security first, and safety first, and health first. Do you hear it? It's in the political climate now. Free college education, free health care, free social security. We'll take care of you. You'll be safe. We'll keep the barbarians out. We'll cure cancer. We'll cure AIDS. We will keep the evil away from you. And for those of us who know the story of Jesus, we have to start to recognize that's not his story Jesus story is about a people who love people so much because of the influence of God on their lives that they are willing to endure suffering and vulnerability and cost so that that person has just another day to follow Jesus This is the God we serve. He's a God who actually is ruling the universe. This is what I want you to hear. He's actually ruling the universe according to Matthew 5 through 7. It's not a future kingdom he describes, it's his current rule. And the world is a mess from our perspective because of it. But the world is not a mess. Because he's not trying to create people who are safe and happy. He's trying to create people who would give their lives to see the right thing done. And those are beings made in God's image. Because we serve a God who died for his enemies. But we are trying to be a people who kill our enemies so we can live. Can you see the difference? And every time that spirit rises up, Jesus calls it Satan, and the church calls it sacred. Do you hear me? I know you don't agree. Neither do I. (laughs) I'm preaching it passionately. You'll find that I preach loudest the things I don't agree with. It doesn't feel right to me either. But I'm starting to realize as I walk with Jesus through this, that he's not talking about some future reality. He's already on the throne and this is the kingdom He has chosen. He's doing this on purpose. How do you feel about that? I know how I feel about it. Can I take a vacation and come back later? (laughs) Is there another kingdom I can live under for a little while? Maybe it's the United States. Maybe it's somebody else just so I can catch a breath. Jesus, can you not show mercy to that guy just today so that I don't have to be hit by his fist? This is the kingdom of the heavens. It's the way God is running the universe now. 
It's not a future reality. And for you and I, the question isn't, what world do you want to live in? You already live in it. It's about your stance toward it. Have you embraced those ethics, or are you fighting for other ethics? I think this is the story of the gospel. And what Jesus says to the high priest that night is that what's happening right now is my kingship. You're not in control, buddy. I'm in control. This is how I want it. God is not a victim in this universe. He's chosen it. Maybe once we start wrestling with that, we'll find our peace in the midst of the storm. Would you stand? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for the day you've given to us. Give you thanks, Heavenly Father, for the word you have preserved as we wrestle to understand it, as we strive to embrace the reality you were telling us about. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't know how I'm ever going to find, and I can't speak for anybody else here, but Lord, in vulnerability, I don't know how I'm ever going to find the redemption of my enemy as a joy that's set before me worth my life. But I recognize that is the value you've set before us. And I ask that you help me anyway to live into that kingdom and to submit to your rule. Perhaps others would pray the same. We give you thanks this day. Thank you for your word and the mercy you've shown to us. Would you help us to value that mercy so much that we're willing to live under a kingdom that uses it as the first ethic. And we do trust that justice will be done in your time, Father. At least we trust that that's what your prophets and your apostles believed and what you taught when you walked among us in the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.